We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Oren Cass. He's the executive director of American Compass, also the author of the great book, The Once and Future Worker. Oren, welcome back. Oh, thanks so much for having me back. Of course. Um, and you, you're out with a new report. It's called A Guide to College for All over at American Compass, which I thought was, first of all, calling it College for All. Maybe I've missed this, but it was something that I, I hadn't really put into words exactly what is so broken. But calling it College for All, our approach to the education system, College for All, I think that just put it into a great perspective is this a, is college for all a, is is this a are a pre-existing uh category or did you guys come up with that language <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure we didn't come up with it i, I don't know I, I can't credit anyone in particular my my own sense is that in the sort of education reform space mm-hmm. um and, and education policy generally college for all is, is sort of the term that's used pro- probably more derisively I, I suppose the folks who think this is is, is a brilliant thing to be doing i'm sure have a, a more respectable sounding term for it um, but but I think College for All, as you just said, d- describes pretty well what we've sort of fallen into and what obviously can't can't possibly be the right answer. Right. And you this is a follow up to something that you guys released late last year. It was called the the failing on purpose survey um, and some really good results and good in the in the sense that they add perspective and I think texture to this conversation. But tell us what some of the big takeaways from the College for All report are. Um, Obviously, you're using uh, all kinds of data here and and crunching the numbers and, and getting it all together. And there's some points that stood out to me. But for you, when you're sort of looking at the the whole report, what did what are the biggest takeaways? Well, I think the place to start is probably just in understanding what a, a strange outlier the United States is in, in our approach to education. And, and that's not to say that, you know, we should be imitating some other country in particular, but it, it is important for Americans to realize that the, the direction that we've drifted in saying that that our high schools are essentially going to be college prep academies, that the goal should be to get everybody to go to college, that virtually all of our funding should be be pointed towards supporting that. The, the rest of the world, frankly, thinks we're crazy. Um, and and my favorite way of, of illustrating that point is, is with wonderful data from uh, the OECD, which is the just main organization of, of developed economies that does a lot of good economic research. And they put out wonderful reports on education systems across developed economies. And, and they look at the share of students in, in upper, upper secondary. So think kind of 10th, 11th, 12th grade. <clears throat> what, what share of those are, are in vocational education, um, actual kind of practical career training? And generally speaking, across developed economies, it's sort of 35 to 55%. Um, so, you know, close to half. Uh, of students are on that sort of track. And and then the United States is just actually excluded from the data. There's always a little footnote saying, sorry, we couldn't even put the United States on the chart because the the U.S. system is so different. Uh, And the U.S. does has has nothing really for people who aren't on the college track. Um, So so I think it's important to recognize that this is not just the way the world works. This is a, a very conscious choice that we've made. Uh, and, and then the second piece that's so important to realize, and we sort of go through lots of different 
um, pieces of data in, in the report that build up to this is that our pipeline is incredibly leaky. Uh, if, if you sort of look at each stage, you know, we look at our high schools and we say, well, gosh, you know, close to 90% of students get complete high school at least. So that feels pretty good. And, and then we look at our college grad, our, our high school graduates and we say, well, gosh, you know, more than two thirds of them are enrolling in college. That, that feels pretty good. Hmm. And then we look at our people in college and we say, well, gosh, look at that. Most of them complete college. That feels pretty good. And then we look at our college graduates and we say, well, you know, most of them land in jobs that, that require a degree, that feels pretty good. Um, but when you, when you stack up all of those steps and, and remember the, the negative side of it, the, the people you lost along the way, what you discover is that by the time you get to the end, you've lost almost everybody. Mm. <laughs> that, that fewer than one in five, um, what, what we call the fortunate fifth, actually go all the way through that path, complete high school, enroll in college, complete college on time, go to a job that that actually required a degree to begin with. And of course, virtually everybody in the commentariat, in the policymaking world are part of that fortunate fifth. And almost everyone they know and talk to are part of that fortunate fifth. And, and they sort of go around with this sense that, well, the system must be working pretty well. Maybe we need to expand opportunity a little bit. Well, you know, <laughs> expand opportunity as much as we can, but that, you know, we're at least on the right track. But, but then when you actually step back and look at America, you realize that the system is catastrophically failing virtually everybody. And yet all of the money that we spend and all of the calls to spend more money are for spending even more money on this pathway that works for very few people and for the few people who are likely to be most successful anyway. Yep. And, and that gets into one of the most important things that you stressed in this. And this is from one of your tweets. We now send more than $200 billion per year in public subsidies to higher education, which we should more prob properly think of as big ed. Absolutely. Um, and all of the sort of solutions, you, you start the report with this really good anecdote with President Obama asking kids how many of them plan to go to college and says, I should see all of your hands up in the air. Um, well, that's all that's going to do is prop up Big Ed, um, which, as you said, it's it's not even an effective pipeline. So is that what separates us from other countries, in your opinion? Is that part of how we got here? Is that that we we have basically an enormous special interest group getting so heavily subsidized and then sort of subsidized by the culture as well, which is echoing um, the need to kind of push people and, and nudge people through that that system. Yeah, I, it's a vicious cycle, right? I, I, we we can't have gotten to here by have by starting here. Once once upon a time, it was a, a less powerful lobby, and I think there were a lot of um, partly sort of cultural shifts back in the '60s and '70s that that pushed us in this direction. Um, but but over time, what we've done is is built up this this incredibly powerful um, special interest group in big ed. I, I don't want to get the, the numbers wrong. And, and I believe they are the largest or certainly one of the largest, largest spenders in Washington, mm -hmm. um, which, which makes sense. If you, if you think about how dependent they are on this just open sluice of federal funding that goes to them, regardless of, of what they actually accomplish, um, and, and so there's certainly the, the sort of interest group pressure element of it. Um, and, and along with that, to sort of the, the point about the Obama quote, I think there's this, this really deeply held sense that college is the pathway to success. The, you, you have people for whom college was the pathway to success 
who therefore sort of think, well, that that must be what everybody else wants and and what we have to provide for everybody else also. And, and I think the two things to say about that are one, you know, it's it's not actually what everybody wants. Um, well, one of the things that was really interesting in, in the failing on purpose survey that we mm-hmm. did is, is we asked both young adults and, and the parents of young adults some questions about their aspirations. You know, would, would they rather sort of get the best possible career if it meant moving far from home or just have a good career and, and be able to stay close to home? And, you know, unsurprisingly, I guess, if, if you sort of go with your stereotypes, the, the people already in the, the college educated um, sort of bubble tend to choose, well, you know, a very career oriented, best career wherever I have to go for it kind of attitude. Uh, but that's not what most Americans say. Mo- most Americans place much greater weight, for instance, on being able to stay close to, to home, to their family, their community where they grew up. Um, you know, you, you see the same thing if you ask about priority for financial well-being versus sort of having a having a family. Um, for for this one sliver of society that's making most of the decisions, um, it's the the career and financial success is is really the priority, and and for everybody else, it's not. Um, so so that's one thing to say is just the 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 model that we have of sort of let's go find all the most talented kids in each community, send them off to the best possible colleges, and and then into a job in New York or San Francisco or whatever. Not even what most people aspire to. Um, and then the second piece that goes along with it is it's even if you say it's very nice to have that aspiration, it's just not realistic. Um, you know, the other data that we really highlight in in this report is we've we've been invested enormous resources in trying to improve academic outcomes for for about fifty years now. You know, we've doubled what we spend per student in k through twelve. Uh, and yet, if you look at our test scores, they've gone nowhere. Um, if, if you look at the best measure we have for uh, high school seniors actually being prepared for college, uh, it's actually down slightly in recent decades and, and sort of stays between 35 and 40 percent. So w- we actually have not shown any ability to improve uh, people's readiness for college or, or ultimately their likelihood of success in college. And yet that hasn't stopped us from just pushing ever more people into college. And unsurprisingly, the results of that are not very good. The fortunate fifth metric is so helpful. And one of the numbers that it includes that stood out to me uh, was how many graduates of college, so people who actually do complete their degree, go on to work in jobs that never required a degree in the first place it's sort of staggering to think of the the student debt um, and the the years and all of that that goes into so many careers that actually don't even require degrees. And that's a great point connecting it to to student debt because you know we certainly have a student debt crisis in this country. If you just talk about the total amount out there, you know the number of people who are really burdened by it. Um, but it, it's a mistake actually to think that that's because college has gotten more expensive for, for those who actually go into college, take on debt to complete a degree, complete a, a useful degree and go on to the kind of, you know, higher paying job that, um, would come with that degree. The debt today is no more onerous than it has been historically, um, the, the problem is the enormous number of people who we are either enrolling in college, having them rack up debt, and then they don't complete. 
um, which, which is a very large share. It's, it's roughly half of, of students who enroll. And, and when you're talking about community college, it's, it's much higher than that. Um, or the students who complete a degree, but it's, it's just not worth very much. It's, it's a degree either that, that's not useful in sort of the field it's in or, um, you know, from, from a, a school that is not um, known for actually sort of instilling valuable skills in students. Um, or it's it's earned by students who uh, who who haven't really sort of demonstrated the ability to to move into those kinds of jobs, and so you know one thing that I think is really striking if you sort of zoom all the way back and think about how this fits into the broader economic narrative is we have this this story that we tell or, or that some people tell that you know with globalization and technological change the problem is we have kind of uh, too much technological progress and, and too many kind of good jobs out there. And we need to educate more people to be able to fill those jobs. If you look at what's actually happened in our labor market in recent decades, it's actually the opposite. We're actually producing college graduates much faster than we're actually creating new jobs that require college graduates. And then on the flip side, you see all sorts of jobs that that are incredibly important to our society that allow someone to support a family uh, that don't require a college education, um, but but do require all sorts of other training and, and skills and that a lot of people um, would would be better suited to would probably enjoy more and, and would fit better with with the lives that they want to build. And so the the question for all of us has to be okay, how do we actually shift our education system to be one that, that supports that and says the, the student who by 10th or 11th grade knows that, that there's a different pathway than college that's gonna make the most sense, we should be investing exactly as much in that student as we are in the student who's, who's headed off to, you know, major in English on a leafy campus somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so that was one of the biggest questions I had for you is, does this require a reorganization of our economy? And it sounds like based on exactly what you just laid out, it, it, it really doesn't, that you essentially already have all of these positions waiting to be, to be filled um, and people needn't spend uh, tens of thousands of dollars. I think average student debt in this country is around $30,000. Um, people needn't spend that much money to go into careers that may not even even uh, require it. So is this more of a, this is more of a reorganization of our education system. And if you fix that, if you sort of steer people in better directions, the economy is sort of already waiting for, for that, or does it require some sort of reorganization on that side as well? Well, I, I think that there are changes that will need to happen on that side as well. If, if we sort of think of it as, as supply and demand for labor, <laughs> we, we have a huge supply problem in, in that we are not operating an education system that prepares people for the workforce, either in keeping with their own aptitudes and, and aspirations or in keeping with what, what the economy actually wants. Um, and, and we'll pay for. Um, but, but then on the flip side, on the demand side, you know, there, there's certainly a problem of the amount of our uh, sort of investment and, and economic development in recent decades that has been going into tech and finance and these, these industries that, um, you know, certainly the jobs that they create are for very highly skilled individuals and they tend to pay very high wages. Um, but among other things, there just aren't very many of them. 
right? So it's not like as you shift from a manufacturing economy to a finance and tech economy, you create nearly as many jobs in app development or, or hedge fund trading <laughs> as, as you may have lost in manufacturing. Um, and, and so what you end up doing is creating a bunch of, of app development and hedge fund trading jobs, and then a bunch of sort of very low wage, low skill service jobs in, in the cities where those very uh, high wage uh, jobs also exist. And so th there certainly needs to be a, a reckoning with that economic trajectory and questioning whether that, that is really a formula for broad-based prosperity. I would say it isn't. And so there are all sorts of policy changes you'd want to make, you know, with respect to globalization and, and how we think about offshoring jobs um, with respect to financial markets and, and, and technology and how we regulate those um, and, and so on and so forth. But there's also, I think it's really important to recognize the, the potential for a virtuous cycle here, which, which is just to say supply and demand aren't independent of each other, right? If, if you were an entrepreneur trying to start a business and looking out at, at what kind of workers our education system is, is cranking out, who are, who are going to be well-trained, you, you would see this you know, glut essentially of college graduates and you would see virtually no investment in the kinds of um, of, of workers and skills that, that you might use to build uh, a different kind of business. And so in a sense, it would make sense to say, well, I'm, I'd better go off and, 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 and start the business that, that, that tries to use those college graduates. And, and you hear that on the flip side, you know, if you think about the construction industry, you think about manufacturing, you hear a lot about labor shortages and skills gaps. Um, and so I think if we had an education system that actually invested in, in, in a supply of workers who, who were ready to go and do these different kinds of jobs, um, that, that would also factor into the thinking of, of, of the investors and employers who are, are thinking about what kind of businesses they want to build and, and who they want to hire. And, and just to sort of put a, a, maybe an exclamation point on that, this virtuous cycle is something that you see in countries that do this kind of thing well. So if, if you think about you know, Northern European countries, for instance, that have very strong apprenticeship programs, one thing that happens if you actually equalize these pathways is that you move away from the social attitude that you know college graduates are the winners and everybody else is a loser. And instead you recognize that whether someone's coming through the college pathway or, or some other pathway doesn't really tell you anything about their talent or skill or drive. And you actually end up with a lot of people who come in through other pathways, you know, being very successful inside, inside big businesses, moving up into management. Um, and, and then in turn, you know, those become higher status pathways and, and those employers look for more people like them. And so I think there's a real potential. And, and this is why we use that college for all term. Um, college for all is bad in a lot of ways. And there's real potential to address a lot of, of what is ailing America, I would say, if, if we reject it. Yeah. Um, it the, I'm looking at your numbers right here under the graph, young men experience especially bad outcomes, and was thinking just about the Wall Street Journal piece that Nick Eberstadt uh, published, I think it was just yesterday, Yes. on uh, men who have, have fallen out of the workforce, and it looks like probably to a lot of people a small number or a small percentage point, but that's, you know, millions of men um, of, you know, working age who are, as Nick points out, 
watching screens. Uh, they report that, you know, the bulk of their time is spent watching, um, whether that's Netflix or video games or whatever it is. Um, so, Orrin, how does the College for All model contribute to that problem? Well, there's no question just empirically that the pathway that we have built is working a lot better for women than it is for men. Um, and, and in that respect, you know, we're talking especially about young women and men as, as they reach adulthood. Um, as you mentioned in the report, we show at every stage, whether it's completing high school, enrolling in college, completing college, um, women are just more likely to to clear those um, those those thresholds. And so, you know, there, there are a few ways of looking at that. I guess one is you could say, um, well, clearly we just need to sort of find some way to, to make this exact same system work better for men as well. Um, but I think it would probably be a lot healthier to, to acknowledge um, that that might be part of the solution, but uh, also there are probably some ways that, that men and women differ in, in this respect and that um, some other pathways would probably be especially uh, valuable to, to especially the, the sorts of folks who, who tend to be you know, young men who aren't performing as well academically. Um, to 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 get them connected uh, to the productive labor force as well. And you know one thing I think it's really important to emphasize is that when you sh when you offer additional pathways that and don't just say we need to get everyone into college, you're not even necessarily saying that a given person should never go to college. What you're saying is this model of graduate high school and enroll in college at 18 is actually not likely to be the right model for a lot of people. Uh, and frankly, it's especially not likely to be the right model for a lot of young men who, who might get a lot of college, you know, out of out of college coursework in their late 20s, but aren't ready to, um, to to really get the benefits of it when when they're 18. And so having more flexibility in, in the system in that respect as well uh, is, is something that that almost by definition has to benefit the, the vast majority of people who, who the current system is not working for, uh, and, and especially those who it, it is working for the least. This is an ad I'm really excited to bring to you because it addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this program, Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable version of yourself in 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and gives you new perspective on your lives and in the world in 2022. So how do they do that? Well, with 22 ideas for 2022, Blinkist's content can incredibly impact your lives. So there are titles of books on Blinkist and they advertise themselves on their website as big ideas in small packages. So you can read major books by people like Scott Gottlieb, who has uncontrolled spread on Blinkist. Even Roger Scruton, How to Be a Conservative, that's on Blinkist. You can read books from prominent author authors, books that are making a huge impact on our politics and on our culture. Ryan Holiday, who's been on this podcast, you can listen to Lives of the Stoics, you can read Lives of the Stoics, and it says, 
is right here on Blinkist's website with a subscription, that book becomes a 13-minute read. Trey Gowdy, Doesn't Hurt to Ask, that book becomes a 15-minute read on Blinkist. They have such a huge library of really important and impactful titles. If you want to read Ilhan Omar's book, you can do that in a truncated time period and it becomes digestible. We are drowning in content right now in our world. And to be able to to condense important ideas from major books that are so impactful is an invaluable contribution. It's exactly the kind of innovation that we need in this high-tech world where, again, we are drowning in content. And to be able to consume it responsibly does require some work. And this condenses the important information from those books without losing anything. That is an aha moment, right? This is an innovation that is bringing us something important that works with the way we live our lives now. And too many people, because of the way we live our lives now, just don't have enough time to get to books, period. This makes books accessible. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. Yeah, and that's, I've heard this argument from so many people, particularly on the left, who are in support of the system, which again, I think they miss is basically an essential, is basically a a giant special interest group. Um, But they say, well, we just need to, to your point, we need to patch up the pipeline, we need the pipeline to be stronger, we need to improve um, the situation so that everybody who goes to college ends up using their degree and um, all of that and has their return on investment, etc, etc. Um, that does seem to be partially a, a deeper cultural problem in that there's this conditioning um, that's really taken root over the last, I don't know, a few decades, if not a little bit more than that, that the, the way to be a sort of valuable contributing member, member of society um, is to be credentialed with a college degree. How do we change that? Well, part of it, to your point, is is purely cultural. I mean, I, I think we've sort of, you know, established this sense of status and it's sort of, you know, in some respects, a decision of, of every person <laughs> in their life and, and in their behavior, what what sort of status or not they want to accord um, to to the college completion as a marker. I mean, I think the reality is that the value of college completion continues to de- decline mm-hmm. in, in a sense, just empirically. And, and so we might see some shift that way. But but then I think the two things that are really important, um, you know, that, that we can do with policy, one is we can formally recognize that college degrees are not um, necessarily an, an important marker of anything. And uh, for instance, this is something that the President Trump did, I believe, via executive order, essentially stopping um, federal job listings from saying you have to have a bachelor's degree. Because let's be honest, what job is there for which having a bachelor's degree is actually a, a meaningful requirement? Um, you know, I think we should do that in the private sector as well. Um, 
you know, either voluntarily, it would be great to see, you know, the, the CEOs of the business roundtable or whoever who, you know, sit around endlessly talking about diversity and equity and inclusion mm. um, say, actually, we are all going to tell our HR departments to stop requiring bachelor's degrees. That doesn't mean you can't ask someone if they have a bachelor's degree or, you know, think about that in the um, in the application process, but especially as we move towards more automated systems of, of applying for jobs, filtering applicants, um, we need to get rid of that as a filter. It's just, it's not good for anybody. Uh, so, so that's the sort of thing we can do. And, and then the other piece of it is, I really think just making this conscious decision to change what we fund. It's, it's not surprising that if we say we're going to spend 200, you know, more than $200 billion a year supporting higher education, and those of you who aren't going to higher education get essentially zero, it, it's, not, it's not a surprise, therefore, that people recognize one as the path with status and the other that is not. Uh, and, and it's not a surprising either. And, and you can't blame people for, for trying. I mean, it's quite rational, even if you don't think college is for you, even if you're not sure you're going to succeed on that pathway to say, well, I guess that's what I should go do if, if that's where all of the support and investment and resources are. And so if, if you know, I think in terms of, of what would be fair, frankly, it would be a lot fairer to put most of the support to people who aren't going to college, um, just given the shape of our economy today. But at a minimum, we, we, should, be, we should be dividing it equitably. We, we should be saying there is just as much funding for non-college pathways as there's for college pathways. And, and this is the last point that's, that's part policy and, and part pure culture. That can't just mean, okay, let's spend another $200 billion on non-college pathways. That has to mean taking money away from big ed. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that never really occurred to me until I was, I was going around you know, talking about my book a lot a few years ago. And, and there, was some, there was sort of a particular group who would come up to speak to me afterward, who you could sort of tell, um, or, or it, it would typically be my assumption were sort of upper middle class parents of the age where they probably have teenagers. And what they would say on specifically on this point, because I would be criticizing, you know, the guidance counselors and the, the whole system and everything's designed around college. What these parents say is you don't understand the schools understand college for all doesn't make sense. We, the parents, understand college for all doesn't make sense. But try telling my 17-year-old daughter she doesn't get to go to college next year. Mm. When, when college, as we've actually built it, is essentially this kind of four-year bacchanalia, um, you know, with some enrichment classes on the side. And so, <laughs> whereas not being in college means go find an apartment that's not nearly as nice as a dorm, have to, you know, cook your own food that's not nearly as nice as the fancy dining hall, and actually, you know, get a job. And the, <laughs> And so um, this, again, is saying the rest of the world just thinks we're crazy about. I mean, in, in, in many countries, you know, thinking about European countries, um, yes, they have, quote, free college, but you have to clear a lot of thresholds to get into it. And college is just the name of the buildings that have classrooms in it, in, in the city. <laughs> you, they, you still go get your own place to live. You still support yourself. And yes, we, and yes the classes are free. And so we, we need to say college is not this four-year amusement park entitlement. 
um, for people between the ages of 18 and 22. College is something that provides a particular type of education. If it is the right type of education for the career pathway you want to be on at that stage in your life. And here are lots of other equally useful types of skill development and education, often much more closely connected to on the job work and an employer uh, that, that we equally support if that's where you want to be. And, and if, 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 if we move that $200 billion around in support of that vision, I, I promise the culture will shift as well. Yeah. Um, and there's so many other implications of, you know, stunting kids in this four year uh, filter, whether it comes to fertility or family formation and, and all of those different things and the sort of cultural expectations and ideas we have around when that should happen and what that should look like. Um, but I, I want to ask, Warren, uh, there's you, the failing on purpose survey was sort of this very surprising dose of optimism for me. <laughs> I really loved it because there were some things that are just completely uh, transpartisan that are not political. Um, but there was the results. You know, parents were had some some surprisingly, I guess, uh, good incl inclinations. Um, and it it's great that it's paired with the called for all report that you did, because in some sense, it shows that like people are ready for both of these like sort of cultural and structural changes, right? That there is that what you were talking about earlier, there really is that demand. And it, it already exists, to some extent in the public. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Because, you know, this is something that has been frustrating to me for for a long time, and, and really was part of the impetus behind the, the survey that we did is that if, if you have this conversation that we're having here, I think generally people will, will nod in agreement um, that, that these things are true. Um, but, but particularly if you're talking to political leaders, they will still then say, okay, but you can't say that, right? Like, but, but if I were to say that, then, you know, that would be attacked as, you know, I don't believe in equal opportunity or, um, you know, at the extreme on the left, that this is somehow like racist and, and, a, and a plan to creep, you know, keep particular groups of people down. And, and even if you can get over that hurdle and have everyone agree in principle that, that this sort of system we're talking about um, that, that places students on different tracks and, and recognizes that they're headed toward different endpoints. Even if you get agreement on that in principle, you still can't tell any individual parent that their own kids shouldn't go to college. Um, and, and so uh, sort of we're in this kind of political trap where even if everyone agrees it's threaded in the abstract, um, it's, it's never, it's never going to happen. And I just didn't believe that. Um, and and in my experience, that's just not how people actually felt. And so, you know, we we ran a fairly large survey. We surveyed both a thousand um, young adults, so people ages eighteen to thirty, and then also a thousand parents of young adults, parents who had a child between the age of twelve and thirty, who therefore were sort of most closely engaged with thinking about these kinds of issues. Um, and 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 what we really focused on was was two things. One. What did they think is the actual purpose of public education? Uh, and, and this is why we call this whole collection failing on purpose. And, and this is the, the failing on purpose survey is that it, it seemed to us less that schools were performing badly on the things they thought they were supposed to be doing and more that 
we just weren't focused on the right things. And, and ultimately that educators weren't focused on the things that, that parents and, and students actually cared the most about. Um, and, and it's funny, especially in the context of, you know, the critical race theory debates, there, there are all these very politically charged fights about, you know, who should be in control of, of curriculum and education on some of these hot button issues. But, but the same goes for just the broad question of like, well, like what is school for? And so, um, you know, I, I think the most important question that we asked probably right at the beginning is we just gave people a choice. We said, you know, to the extent that these things are a trade-off, um, which do you think is more important? First, helping students develop the skills and values they need to build decent lives in the communities where they live. Or second, helping students maximize their academic potential and pursue admission to colleges and universities with the best possible reputations. And, and I think number two is sort of a pretty precise definition of, of, of how we think about school today. Uh, and yet overwhelming majorities, you know, by, by three to three or four to one, um, parents and students both said, no, 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 the, the main purpose here has to be helping students develop the skills and values they need to build decent lives in the communities where they live. And, and to your point, Emily, one, one of the most interesting things is that was not a partisan question at all. The, mm -hmm. That held whether you were talking up to Democrats or independents or Republicans, that held whether you were talking to lower class, working class, middle class, upper class. Um, and, and so that's something I, I think you're exactly right. That that's a cause for enormous optimism. Um, and, and then just to fast forward to the other end of the survey, you know, we, we then ask all sorts of other things about people's preferences and, and their experiences in the education system. But then we asked a, a question at the end, you know, thinking about your, your own experience, either for yourself or, or your, ch or your child, um, which would you rather have seen, or which would you rather see policymakers create as an option at the end of high school? W would you rather see a three-year apprenticeship um, that leading to a good job or free tuition to any college you can get into? Um, and three-year apprenticeship was significantly more popular um, by, by about 60-40. And if you look among the, the students and, and the parents where um, they had not had success on the college pathway, of course, it was even more popular, you know, it was 75-25. Um, but, but then really interestingly, for, for parents in particular, and this goes to the point about a, even a college degree not leading to a good job, um, even among parents whose kids had successfully completed college, 40% of them said they would have rather had the offer of a three-year apprenticeship for their <laughs> child rather than a full tuition scholarship. And so, you know, in, in my mind, what this points to, and I think it's important to emphasize this, the, the point is not we should shut down all the colleges and universities and, <laughs> and college is always bad and no one should ever go. But the point is that the system that we are operating does not align at all with what people actually recognize we need. And, and that at the margin, if we're thinking about what do we need more of, what do we need to change, the answer is not spend more on college and do free college and et cetera, et cetera. That's, that is just not what is lacking from the system. What is lacking is much, much greater investment in alternative pathways and, and a real clear message, uh, you know, kind of going back to where we started with the Obama quote, that when you ask who here wants to go to college, 
the correct answer is not that everybody raised their hand. <laughs> and, and I think we'll, it, it will just, it will be of tremendous benefit to so many individuals, especially those who are falling behind uh, and, and ultimately just be a, a very healthy thing for the country. Yeah, the the report is called A Guide to College for All, and you can read Failing on Purpose, the survey, you can read all of the essays that go with it on AmericanCompass.org. Oren Cass, Executive Director of American Compass, thank you as always for bringing your insight and your knowledge to the Federalist Radio Hour. We appreciate it so much. Oh, this was wonderful. Hopefully you'll have me back again. I think we will. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm-hmm.